Last week, if you were with us, I began my sermon with a joke about heaven and rewards in heaven. And it was relevant because we looked at the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where Paul is talking about rewards and the rewards that we receive in heaven. Well, after using that joke, I was inundated with heaven jokes this week. I had people stopping me at the store, uh, had people sharing with me in uh, church, had people emailing me heaven jokes, and I want to let you know I appreciate all of the heaven jokes. If you emailed me, if you stopped me and told me, if you yelled at me from the parking lot and told me, uh, thank you for sharing it. We pastors can always use material, so I appreciate it. But uh, the irony of the whole thing is one of the jokes that were emailed to me or was emailed to me uh, fit perfectly with this morning's message. And so for the second week in a row, we're going to start with a joke about heaven. Now, if you remember last week, I told you don't build your theology on jokes about heaven because heaven jokes are not always theologically sound. St. Peter is not the one who greets you at the gates. And, And so don't read anything into it that's not there. But this joke really fits with what I wanted to share this morning. Um, There was a a man that was older. As he grew older, he began to recognize that all that he had accumulated in life, all that he had gained was going to disappear when he died. He had worked hard. He was a good man. He went to church. He he gave. But he really started grieving as he got older about all the things that he was going to leave behind, the things that he wasn't going to be able to take to heaven with him. So he began to pray, Lord, please just let me take a little bit of my stuff, a little bit of all the things that I've got. Let me take it to heaven. This is my life's work. Let me bring it to heaven. Well, an angel appeared to him. And the angel said, listen, we, we keep hearing you pray, but you understand you can't bring earthly things to heaven. It's just not possible. Nobody gets to bring things from this earth to heaven. The man begged, he said, listen, would you just see, is there any loopholes, is there any way that, that we can somehow just bring something from all that I've gained, all that I've treasured into heaven? And the angel said, I don't think so, but I'll check. And so the man continued to pray, just, just give me a chance to take something, maybe just my pockets or, or a backpack, something of all that I've gained. And the angel comes back and says, well, I was completely surprised, but the Lord agreed because you were a good man and you did good things and you gave to the church and you sacrificed in missions. He said, I, he is going to let you take one suitcase of whatever you consider valuable to heaven with you. And the man was so excited, he went through all his house and began to gather everything. And what's the most valuable thing that I want to take to heaven? What's the most important thing that I've accumulated that I can take to heaven with me when I die? And so what he did was he took all of his money and he transferred it over into gold bars. And he got all the gold bars and he filled up a suitcase and he set it next to his bed. And he, he dreamed that he would be able to go to heaven and take a little bit of his life here with him to heaven. Well, sure enough, not soon after that, he passed away. And he found himself at the gates of heaven, and St. Peter was there, and he said, I'm here to get into heaven. And St. Peter said, well, welcome into heaven, but, you know, you can't bring a suitcase with you into heaven. And he said, but I was given a a rider. I was given an extra bonus. I was able to bring something into heaven. And Peter said, that just doesn't happen, but I'll go check. And so Peter went and checked, and I I don't know who he talked to, but he came back and said, uh, well, it's right. You were given an exemption. You get to bring one suitcase into heaven. But before you can come in, I have to examine what you brought to heaven with you. And the man said, yeah, it's wonderful. And so Peter gets it out, and he opens the suitcase, and he looks at the suitcase, and he looks at the man, and he looks at the suitcase, and then the suitcase contained all that the man thought was so valuable here on earth and he looked back at the man he said I understand you wanted to bring that which was important to you but why in the world did you bring construction material 
Now, some of you will get that later, okay? <laughs> That's one of those jokes, okay? Explain it to him later, okay? Y'all get it that? It's just, it's just one of those jokes. But it's a perfect illustration of perspective. It's a perfect illustration of how what we think is so valuable, how we think is so important in the whole scheme of things is not really important. In the whole scheme of our lives is not really valuable. All of those things that we place so much value on in earth and so much importance on in earth, in heaven, they're not worth anything. Not worth anything. And as we've been talking about this series, the struggle is real. I believe one of the greatest implementations of struggle for Christians is that we have the wrong perspective of the circumstances and situations in our life. And that's the reason we struggle. We're not seeing things the way God has called us and set us free to see things. And because we're not having the right perspective, we don't know how to respond and we don't know how to react. And so those things begin to overwhelm us. Let me give you another illustration. Put that slide up. This is a picture that, uh, if you can see it, it's been uh, all over the Internet, and it's been on the, the, the web, different websites, and people look at it, and it seems like a, a picture that is it's crazy. It's a stone floating in the middle of the sky, and people have looked at it, and they've tried to explain it, and everybody said it must be magical. It must be uh, something supernatural in that picture. But in reality, show the next picture. It's just upside down. Can you show the next one? There you go. It's, it's just upside down. It's a rock and a lake with trees around it. So, so all the, the confusion, all the misunderstanding was just, they had the picture upside down. And what happens in our life is so many of the things that we worry about so much, so many of the things that we stress out over, so many of the circumstances and situations that, that in reality we get mad at God. God, why did you let this happen? God, why are these things coming into my life? The issue is not what you're facing. The issue is you've got the picture upside down. You're not looking at the right angle. You're not looking at the whole picture. And so this morning, Paul has been talking about, in 1 Corinthians, this idea of wisdom. And he's been talking about God's wisdom for two chapters. God's wisdom versus man's wisdom. The way God operates and the way man thinks. And what I fear in the church is that so many Christians, while we say we understand God's wisdom, we say we understand how God operates, we have allowed the influence of the world to affect our perspective. We've allowed the way the world looks at things and the way the world handles things to influence how we look at things and how we see things. The Bible says, and we looked at it last week, here in 1 Corinthians 3, 16, 17, it says, You are the temple of God. You now, every one of you that is a Christian, have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you. And that changes everything. It changes the way you view things. It changes the way your heart is. You have the very heart of God, the very mind of God. It changes your mindset, your values, your worldview. Everything changes because you're different. But what I fear is many Christians, instead of allowing that worldview that is God's to come through our heart, we continue to cling to that wisdom of the world. What's important in the world's eyes, what's important, what's valuable in the world's eyes. And much like that man that ended up in heaven with nothing more than construction equipment in heaven, you and I are going to come to the end of our life and we're going to look back and recognize that the time and the effort and the energy and the treasure that we wasted on so many things that had no value for eternity 
are going to come to nothing. And I can't imagine, I can't imagine God looking at our lives, much like that picture that was up there and going, wait a minute, you had the picture upside down. All along, I gave you the right view. All along, I showed you the path. I showed you the direction. You were just looking at it wrong. So this morning, Paul's going to warn us about having a right perception. And I, I just want to tell you, before we talk about the right perception, in your mind, I know most of you in, in a service like this are thinking, Pastor, that's great, but I've got it all figured out. I'm looking at things the way God's called me to look at things. I, I think I figured out that this is God's will and this is God's mindset and this is God's heart. But the problem for many of us is we don't recognize all of the preconceptions that we bring in to our relationship to God. All of the things that we've been taught growing up, all of the things that, that we've been, our parents showed us and the people that we listened to and the things that have influenced us growing up, we bring all of that stuff into how we look at the picture that God creates of our life. And so with those things weighing on us, we naturally, without working, without making an effort, we naturally flow over to see things the way the world sees things. You ever been out with some friends laying in a field looking at clouds? You ever looked at clouds and tried to figure out what they were and how they were? You're out there laying in a field and you're looking at clouds and you think, it just looks like a bunch of puffy clouds. One of your friends said, no, look, that cloud there, that, look, it, that could be a nose and, and that could be an ear and, and it goes down, there's a tail, that's a dog. Look, can you see a dog? And you're looking at the cloud that just a minute ago you said, I don't see anything. I think, well, maybe that's a dog. And the more you look at it, because your friend is saying, no, look, and there's the feet, you start going, okay, yeah, it's a dog. And you want to look around and go, look, do y'all see the dog? Whereas just a few minutes ago, it was just puffy clouds. Why did it change? It changed because someone in your life influenced you to see what you didn't see there. And the same thing happens in our life. When we struggle, when we have difficulties, the perception that we have of those difficulties, the perception that we have of that mountain we're facing or that river we're facing, it is influenced by the people around us, by our preconceptions, how we were raised on how we're going to handle it and how we're going to deal with it. And Paul says, that's a problem. Because you're not the same person you were when you were raised. You're not the same person you were last week or when those people around you. You have new eyes and a new mindset and a new heart so that you can see the whole picture better than you ever saw it before. The issue for you and I is not a struggle issue. It's a perception issue. And so Paul's going to give us some, some warnings and some dangers about preconception and dangers about how we see things. So I want, to li want you to listen. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. Chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. It's in your order of worship if you want to follow along. There's Bibles in the pew underneath you. We're going to talk about gaining the right perception. Now, you remember while you're turning there, while you're looking there, Paul's been talking about division in the church. What started this whole argument off in chapter 1 was the dissension, the disunity in the church. And all of this argument about God's wisdom is relating to disunity in the church. And he is also going to relate this perception problem to disunity in the church. Because the problem in the Corinthian church is they didn't see each other through the eyes of God. And so they were treating one another badly in the church and it was causing disunity and it was causing problems. And so that's the underlying foundation, but really it's much more relevant to our lives here in this earth. So listen to what he says. 
Like I said, I go back and read in verse 16. Don't you know that you yourself are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? Now, I told you two weeks ago, he's not talking about the external. When we think of temple, we think of the temple in the Old Testament. We think of this building. People think this building is a church. This building is not the church. This is where the church meets. You are the church. And when he says you are the temple of God, he is not talking about your hands and feet and hair. He's talking about your heart. The Holy Spirit of God lives inside of you. And I've heard people misuse that, that, this passage to talk about, well, we all should lose weight and be in health shape. And, and all those things are important, and those things may be important to you, but that's not what he's talking about here. I heard a sermon one time where a pastor stood up and said, you shouldn't get tattoos and you shouldn't get your body pierced because it's the temple of God. God's not worried about what the outside looks like. He makes that clear in Matthew. When he says, you're nothing but whitewashed sepulchers, the outside looks good, but the inside is dying and corrupt. What God is talking about here as a temple is your heart. That's why I tell people all the time, you, you can dress up and wear your best clothes on Sunday, and if you feel convicted to do that, do that. But we've got churches and churches and churches full of the best-dressed people on Sunday morning at 10 and 11 o'clock whose hearts are corrupt and ugly towards the things of God. God's more interested in your heart, how you've treated people, how you've lived according to His standards and His Word. That's what Paul's getting at. Don't you understand that your heart, your, your soul is where the Holy Spirit of God, the very nature of God, now lives. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. Now this is where he gets into perception. Do not deceive yourself. For if any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool. And that word there is, actually translates into moron. He should become a moron so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. And as it is written, he catches the wise of the craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about men. No more boasting about yourself, boasting about those that you follow, boasting about the people that you think are more important than anybody else. He said, stop boasting about men. All things are yours. Now, if you're reading along in your Bible, underline that, circle it. All things are yours. That's a, that's a huge perception shift. All things. When he says all things, is he talking about some things? Is he talking about uh, life, the future? He's talking about all things. And then in case you don't get it, he's going to explain. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or, or Peter, Cephas, talking about your pastors, they're all yours. They're all there for your benefit or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All of those are for your benefit. And you are of Christ. And Christ is of God. Now that's a real quick wipe away statement that we sometimes can read through and think, that's a nice sentiment. That's earth shattering. What he's saying is that all the things that you can see are yours. God said, I I created all of these things for you. The pastors that I bring to you, the worship leaders, the people that I bring into your life to speak God into you. I do that for you. Life, the world, the future, death, it's all for you. Why? Because you are in Christ, and Christ is in God. That means that we are secure in Christ, and because of that truth, everything else we see, that we confront, that we deal with, all has a new perspective. 
My perspective is no longer in Rusty. It's now in Christ. So that everything I see, I see through Christ-colored lenses. It's changed. Now, the first thing he warns us about is self-deception. He says, don't deceive yourself. Because a lot of us, most of us would say, I got no problem with perception. I'm looking through Jesus' glasses. I got it all figured out, Pastor. Well, apparently that's not the case. Because in the Corinthian church, one of their issues was, even though they were spiritually immature, even though Paul says they were carnal Christians, they thought they had all the answers. So much so that they thought they were so spiritual that they could judge not just the other pastors, but their fellow church members. And Paul says, wake up, you're deceiving yourself. You know, the the fastest deceit that we fall for is always self-deceit. It's always convincing ourselves that we are better or smarter or wiser than we really are. Now, don't look at me spiritual. You know it's true of you. you. Last time you filled out a survey or you filled out a questionnaire, you didn't fill out who you are. You filled out who you want to be, right? Because that's just our human nature. And I don't think Paul is talking about hypocrites here. There are people in the Christian life that they purposefully put on a show and pretend to be something they're not. I think Paul's talking about people that are sincere and devoted Christians who in their mind, they think, I am living for God. But in reality, they have deceived themselves. And they've allowed the world and the world's way of thinking and the world's principles to creep in slowly and affect their perception. And Paul's saying, that's dangerous. Be careful. You can get in trouble because what happens is once we start believing that we've got it all figured out, we start thinking we're pretty smart. And it feeds the flesh. Pride jumps in there. Pride, the greatest enemy of the Christian, begins to jump in and go, listen, you're smarter than that guy sitting beside you. You have a deeper relationship with God than that guy over there. A pastor's teaching or a preacher's teaching or a Sunday school teacher's teaching. You think, I I know this. I got this stuff figured out. I don't need him to tell me this stuff. What happens is all of a sudden the enemy comes in and begins to fuel that pride that's in our spirit and our heart. And all of a sudden the, the, the view that we had that was out here all of a sudden becomes this. Because we think our wisdom is more important than any other wisdom that God might bring into our life. And while we think I got it all figured out, this is what we're looking at as a Christian. And God didn't put the blinders there. We put the blinders there. It's been said, the one who can deceive us the quickest is our own human heart. And you see, one of the dangers of distorting our perception, allowing pride to do this, is all of a sudden we start seeing people different than what God wants us to see on. Because when you begin to think that you're wiser than you really are, when you begin to think that you're a better Christian than you are, or you're a better spiritual person than you really are, all of a sudden you start judging other people. Even though they may be on your same level, or they may be even higher than you, you start thinking, I'm pretty smart. And you know what our mind does? It rationalizes. We start thinking that what we want must be what God wants. If we want to do it, if we think this is right, then God must think it's right. How arrogant of us to think that God is going to kowtow to our whims and desires without looking at His Word to finding exactly what He wants. And that's how it becomes divisive in the church. Because once we start believing our own lies, then we start projecting those lies. It's what people think we are, so we've got to act the way people think we should act, right? It's kind of Walter Mitty thing. 
We lie enough to ourselves and convince ourselves, I'm spiritual and I'm wise. And somebody comes up to you and says, oh, you are so wise. And yes, I am. Well, now I've got to act wise, right? Now I've got to be smart. And if I can't be smart, then I better fake it. And if faking it works once, then faking it's going to work twice. And faking it's going to work three times. And instead of saying, I don't know or I don't have a clue, we pretend and we fake and we start throwing in our own reasoning and our own rationing. And once we begin to walk down that path, we begin to see everybody else in the church as less than us. We begin to think that we, we're the only ones really hearing from God. And so what happens in church where it becomes disunifying is, is decisions made in the church become nothing more than who can be the loudest and who can get the most people to convinced that they're seeing dogs in the clouds. Instead of, what does God want for our church? What does God want for our marriage? Because, see, we don't just do it in church. We do it in our relationships. We do it in our home. We do it in our jobs. And all of a sudden, that, that perception that it's all yours. L- listen to God. See what God wants for you. We start narrowing it down. He says, don't be deceived. You're, you're living a deceived life. So what's the answer to self-deception? Paul says it's applying God's wisdom to your heart. He said it's not relying on man's wisdom, but God's wisdom. And so you need to examine yourself. To do that, you need to be honest. I mean, how many of us are really open to being honest? We're not even honest when we get ready in the morning, are we? I've got two bathrooms in my house. I've got one bathroom that has incredible lighting, and I've got one bathroom that has bad lighting. You know which room I get ready in? Bad lighting. You know why? I look better in bad lighting than I do in good lighting. Just honest, right? You go in the other room and you look at that mirror and you go, wait, what is that? You go back into the the other room and you go, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I'm getting ready in here. And we don't just do it in little areas of our life. We do it in every area of our life. And we do it in our spiritual life. We don't like to be honest. We don't like God shining a light on us and saying, wait a minute, here's the issue. Here's the problem. So instead, we just keep the light turned off. And what he says is, if you really want to get a good picture of what your perception is and where your perception's coming from, go to this book and start reading it. Because what this book says, if it doesn't line up with what your perception is of who you are and who other people are and how we act according to those perceptions, then it's... I love the term. He says, the people in the world feel like they're wise. He's talking to Corinthians. He says, some of you, you think you're wise. But the wisdom of the world is foolish. So to God, you who think you're wise, you're a fool. You're a moron. And the world thinks the way of God is foolish, so you've got a choice. Who do you want to be a moron for? Do you want to be a moron for the world or a moron for God? Or even better, who do you want to stand before and be known as either a fool for God or a fool for the world? This is the only way you can really come to grips with your deception and your perception is by being honest about yourself and saying, I'm not so smart. I don't have it figured out. I used to have a friend that said it helped him to wake up every morning and look in the mirror and say, you're a moron. And um, I agreed with him. I would say, yeah, you're right. You're a moron. But that doesn't work for me. Because he's not talking about some kind of self-depreciation here. He's not talking about beating yourself up. 
You know, that, that false humble brag that we get in the world today. Well, poor me, I don't know anything. Because we're wanting somebody to come up and go, oh, yeah, you do. You are so smart. And so, we, no, I don't. Because we're waiting for them to. He's not talking about something like that. He's talking about just being brutally honest with yourself. You don't, it's not about anybody else. It's about you saying, I don't have all the answers. God, I, I hadn't got it figured out. God, I have put value in the things that the world puts value in, and I've gotten lost down this path. I've gotten confused, and it's distorted the way I see relationships. It's distorted the way I see other people. It's distorted the way I treat other people. It's distorted the way I see my own life. God, help. That's all he's asking for. He says, you need to come to that place where you say, just God, show me the truth. Turn the picture over and let me get a glimpse of what it's supposed to look like. Where do you get that? You get that here. He's saying, be honest about who you are in Christ. And then he addresses the, the issue of, of other leaders. He says, you know, you've got this argument where you think your pastor's better than his pastor and your pastor's... And we do the same thing. Somehow we make things competitive. Our pastor's better than you. Our church is better than you. I can only listen to this preacher. I know people who follow one pastor around the country because they say, hey, he's the only pastor I can hear. And Paul looks at him and says, how arrogant of you. To think that God sent these people to teach you and you're judging them and saying, he's not good enough, she's not good enough, she's not... And, and listen, if you think there's only one pastor or teacher that can teach you God's Word, then you have put blinders spiritually on your eyes. Because the Bible says every person God brings into our life, whether it's a Sunday school teacher or a, a person that's in accountability group or a prayer partner or a pastor or a worship leader, they are there to speak something into you. And every one of them speaks something differently. I, I've told pastors before when I do pastors' conference, we've got to stop thinking we're in competition. I'm not competing with the other pastors in town because they offer something that I don't and I offer something that they don't. And the people that God brings to this place are here because God felt like you need whatever He has given me to offer you. But that doesn't mean you can't go Wednesday or Sunday and hear somebody else. And I'm not going to be threatened. I'm not going to be mad or angry. Matter of fact, I'll be happy because it tells me that you're hungry for God and you recognize that a different preacher and a different teacher and a different leader can add and pile on and help you see things that maybe I couldn't help you see. He says, stop making it a competition. Stop. He said, all of the preachers, all of the teachers, they're for you. Get a bigger picture. Open your eyes. And you guys understand, you know, we have got to get to a place where we learn to love other Christians. You know, the, the whole, and we may get to 2 Corinthians, maybe before the rapture, as slow as I'm going through 1 Corinthians, but we may get there. But the whole passage on love, 1 Corinthians 13, where he talks about the love chapter. That's all written for how Christians are supposed to treat other Christians. I know we read it in weddings and marriage. That's, he's talking about that's how you're supposed to treat one another. That kind of love. And if you, you want to see people get angry and hurt and hateful it, in the church. Man, sheep can bite and they bite each other. 
Paul's saying, you've got to get to a place where you recognize that the reason God put that person in the church, that person you don't like, and listen, God doesn't call us to like everybody. He calls us to love everybody. I, I claim that promise every Sunday, every Monday morning. So we don't have to like each other, but we've got to love each other. And that means that person that grates on you, that drives you crazy, that sits next to you in Bible study, sits next to you in the pew, God put that person there for a reason. Because they're sandpaper. Because all of us have rough edges. There, there was a time in my life I'd ask God. God would bring somebody into my ministry and I'd think, God, you brought the wrong person. Can I throw this one back? You know, God, you, this is, they came in the wrong place at the wrong time. God, God said, no, they're there for you and you're here for them. Because I recognize that those people that maybe got on my nerves and didn't see things the way I saw things and didn't, but that was God's way of me being sandpaper to them to help rub the rough edges off of them and them being sandpaper to me to help rub the rough edges off of me. Why? So that the more they rub and the more I rub, the more we become like Jesus. And I also learned the hard way that the more stubborn I am, the harder the sandpaper gets. We've got to learn to appreciate one another, love each other, not, not judge each other, not ascribe false motives to one. Give each other the benefit of the doubt. I never, I never understood. We'll give TV personalities more benefit of the doubt than we'll give family members or church members. Why? Why not think the best instead of thinking the worst? Paul's saying, get a new perspective. It changes everything. When you begin to see things through God's eyes, you don't see somebody that drives you crazy. You see a child of God that had a horrible week and is struggling just like you, and they don't know how to express it, and that comes out different than the way you do. But that doesn't mean they're wrong or bad or, or messed up. It means they're just like you. They just express it differently. He says, get a different view. And then I share with you the idea of that view. He changes. He twists it around. And, and he says, here's some examples of how your view should have changed. Some things that you should see differently now. Because when God lives in you, you don't see things the way you used to. Not just yourself and not just people in church. He said everything. And I love what he said there in verse 23. Because you are now in Christ. So when God looks at you, he sees Jesus Christ. And so you've been redeemed. You've been given a new mind and a new heart and a, a new view. And, and Paul just lists a couple of things there. What does he say? He says, the world is yours. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever gone out to Thunder Hill Overlook or to the Apsky Mountain or one of the places just looking and go, God did this for me. For me. We rush by and you see... Everybody can appreciate it. Everybody yesterday was out. If you got out and around yesterday, you got stuck in traffic because everybody was out. It was sunny. People were fishing everywhere. People were, everybody can enjoy it. But they can't enjoy it why, the way I enjoy it. You know why? Because I know the Creator intimately, and that changes my perspective. When you know the person that made it, it makes it different. I got one of my good friends from high school that we grew up together and went to church together. His daughter is a country music singer. And when she was in high school and getting into country music, he would send me these handmade CDs and say, listen, listen to my daughter. It's not my kind of music, but it was his daughter, my buddy's daughter. I was like, okay. Well, now she's a big star. She's going to sing on the American Country Music Awards, and her name's Maddie Marlowe. She sings in a duet, Maddie and Tay. Not my kind of music. 
But ever since he started sending me those things, I listen to every song she sings, and I listen to it differently. Why? Because I know her daddy. I know the artist. And when you begin to go out into the world and see that sunrise or that sunset, you begin to see the, the waves on the shore of the ocean. You begin to sit outside at night and see the stars and hear the crickets or see that animal run through the trees. I see it differently now. Because I intimately talk and know the artist. He said, the world is yours. But not just the world. He said, life and death is yours. All of life. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and life more abundantly. That word more abundantly means to the fullest. The reason Jesus saved us and left us here on earth is so that we could get a glimpse of what heaven is like while we're still in the flesh my view of life changed. My, my, the picture totally flipped. What's important in life? What I thought was important, gaining and, and having and hoarding and being the most popular, or the most, all that changed now. Life is different. Death is different. I got a whole new view of death. I don't fear death. Death is not a battle for me. I hear people say, well, they lost their battle with death. I'm not going to lose a battle with death. But death's been defeated. The only thing that death can do to me is deliver me into Jesus' arms. And if that's the worst that comes, what am I to fear? I'm not going to live my life worried about when I'm going to die. All that means is I get to see Jesus. Am I sad when people die? My heart? Yes. But death holds no handle over me. I can remember a pastor was doing a, a children's sermon. You know how they used to do children's sermons? The pastor would come and sit and all the kids gather around. It was really like an object lesson for the parents that wouldn't pay attention to the sermon. They kind of got the children's sermon. So he's talking to them, preaching to you. And so he's talking to them. And they're talking about Easter, you know. And he says, you know, everybody, Easter is all about going to heaven and accepting Jesus Christ. And he's sharing with them. And he got to the end. He did a big, you know, cry. He said, okay, where do we want to go when we die? And they all shouted, heaven. And he said, and what do we have to do to get there? And this kid jumps up and says, die. <laughs> I don't think that was what he wanted. I don't think that was. But it's the right answer. He was right. You, death. But it doesn't mean the same thing. It's not the same picture as it was when I was young, before I had Jesus Christ. It's changed life and death and the world. And then he says, the present and the future. Now, now this should set some of you free. And I'm almost done. This sets some of you free. What he's saying is, the view that you have of today, the struggles you have, the difficulties you have, the, 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 the things that are overwhelming, you, said, you are controlled over that. Jesus Christ gave you the power to overcome everything that you'll ever face in this life. And he promises that no matter what you face, you can overcome it through the power of Jesus Christ. And if you can't, if it overwhelms you, he promises that he will be there with you. And if he has my today in his hands, then he's got my tomorrow in his hands. So why do I worry? Why do we worry about so many things like that man? So many things that have no eternal value. Why do we stay up at night and get stressed and, and get in arguments and fights with people we love over things that have no eternal value? He says, listen, you should see it differently now. Why get bogged down? You have a different perspective. Church, listen to me. 
if we could ever really begin to see what we have in Christ, we wouldn't look at suffering and struggles and difficulties. and We'd look at everything differently. And it would change not only our outlook, but the way we treated other people. Now I know, a sermon like this, there's nothing revolutionary in there. Most of you in here probably have heard everything I just said. Maybe not the way I said it, but you heard it. You know that who you are in Christ and that Christ has given you victory over the world and life and death and that who I am in Christ, that I can deceive myself. But you see, what I found is the longer we're Christians, the more we're Christians, the easier it is for us for our vision of what God's painted for us to get cloudy if we don't take the time. You know, one of the most difficult things that I had to come to grips with about getting older was my eyesight. Now, I know some of you that are older are going to say, well, hang on, Pastor, it's getting worse. So, but it, it drove me crazy about mid-40s. I always had perfect eyesight. I never had to wear glasses. Never had I, Perfect. People would come to me and say, what do you see, Rusty? Because it was great. And then sometime in my mid to late 40s, I began to notice I can't read the TV. And I'm driving and I can't see signs. So I thought, well, maybe I, my eyes are going. So I did what most of you did. I went down to Walmart and got a pair of cheaters. I put them on the end of my nose, you know. And I did that. It worked, but it didn't heal my vision. But it, it got me by for a little while. Then finally I realized this isn't working. It's getting worse. So I went to the doctor. Had my eyes examined. He gave me new glasses. I put them on. But I was only, it was only for me to read. I didn't have to need, need them for all just for reading and distance. I had people coming up to me in the church. This is what convinced me. People were coming up and going, Pastor, you're so rude. And I said, what do you mean I'm rude? I saw you at Walmart. I was waving at you. You didn't even look at me. I didn't see you. You were just a blob of face. So I said, I better get glasses so I don't, you know, I'm not rude to people. And so I got glasses and I could see. But nobody told me. None of you told me. Nobody warned me. Maybe I didn't even pay attention. Nobody told me that when you got glasses, that the next year you had to go get more glasses. Your eyes keep getting worse. And so about a year, year and a half later, and listen, I'm a cheapskate. I'm not going to spend $300 on a pair of glasses. I got a perfectly good pair. Why do I want three sitting around the house? So I said, I'm going to make it work. So I wore them for about six to eight months. And, you know, it would get blurry, and I'd, I'd, I've got progressive, so I do this. You know, some of you may have noticed when I'm preaching, I, who is that back there? Because so I, I made it work. And one day I was fishing with my daughter, and I fly fish. And so she and I were fly fishing. Fly fishing, we use little bitty flies, little bitty line. So I had my glasses on, had my sunglasses over my glasses, because I'm not going to pay for prescription sunglasses and lose them. So they're over my glasses. And then to tie the flies... I had to put my cheaters on over those. So I had three sets of glasses doing this. My daughter said, you are ridiculous. Get away from me. So what? She said, look at you. You got three pairs of glasses that you can just get one and do the same thing. So I finally broke down and went and got some glasses. That, and now they, I have to use them all the time. But now I know the signs when they start to go out. You see, I think Christians do the same thing. We get saved and we see the big picture. Man, this is what Jesus did for me. This is what God did for me. I got all this. Death no longer holds anything to me. And God's got my life in his hands. But over time, our vision starts to get narrower and narrower. And we don't even recognize. We just think that's, it's always, you know, I, I'm always seeing this. No, you're not. 
Because you're slowly through things of life letting little influences of the world creep in. Little thoughts of the world creep in. And it just starts getting narrower and narrower. And we walk around and think, I can see. Because we've forgotten what it was to really see the whole picture. This morning, God's saying, maybe it's time for a perspective exam. Maybe that struggle you have, maybe that situation or circumstance that you have, the problem is not the circumstance, not the situation, not the relationship. The problem is your perspective. Let's pray.